Good morning. Today, the last Sunday of the season of Epiphany, before we enter Lent this Wednesday, we hear the traditional story of the Transfiguration as told in Matthew's Gospel. Let us open our ears, minds, imaginations, and hearts across time and space and join Jesus and his disciples on a mountain hike. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and the brothers James and John with him. They went up on a very high mountain where they could be alone. There, in front of the disciples, Jesus was completely changed. His face was shining like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. All at once, Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. So Peter said to him, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While Peter was speaking, the shadow of a bright cloud passed over him, over them. From the cloud, a voice said, This is my own dear son, and I am pleased with him. Listen to what he says. When the disciples heard the voice, they were so afraid, they fell flat on the ground. But Jesus came over to them and touched them. He said, get up and don't be afraid. When they opened their eyes, they saw only Jesus. On their way down from the mountain, Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone what they had seen until after the Son of Man had been raised from death. For the good news of Jesus Christ, thanks be to God. Let us pray together. God, may we turn to you. May we join in this story of your dazzling brightness. May we remember to whom we belong and to whom we are dedicated. And may you help us not be afraid. May the words of our mouths and meditations of all our hearts be truly acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. And let people say, Amen. I'm grateful for the extra technical assistance we're having with the camera. Thank you, Susan. There in front of the disciples, Jesus was completely changed. His face was shining like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. 
Again, wondering why we have the Transfiguration appointed in this time of the year. It's different in different Christian traditions. It doesn't always fall on this Sunday. And I think in the Protestant tradition, we decided that it would be the culmination of Epiphany that starts with the light in the sky for the Magi coming from the East and concludes with this story of Jesus' dazzling brightness. One of my favorite preachers has said that we have pawed over this story for its significance through the centuries because it's an experience they had that does not fit any of our regular categories. Perhaps we've just been handling it over and over until we wear it down to where it feels safe to us. Or we just keep analyzing it until we can say something intelligent about it. Essentially, though, this was a private moment among Jesus and his closest disciples, taking a hiking retreat for some prayer, a moment to get away. And while they were up there, they had what religious scholars call a theophany. That's a moment in which God shows up, at least in our awareness, usually in profound and startling ways. And we think we're unused to these kind of experiences, at least as they're described in the Bible. God talking out of a burning bush, or the voice of God in a whirlwind, or as a dove flies overhead. But perhaps we're just not li listening carefully enough. Now, in the overall narrative of Jesus' ministry on earth, this story marks the significance of Jesus, the human being, with Jesus, the divine Son of God. And after he comes down from that mountain, he starts a gradual march toward his death. My guess is that if you or I had a colleague or a friend whom we were getting to know, who had impressed us with their talent, their charisma, their people skills, their compassion, their healing, their idiosyncratic teaching that somehow brought us deeper into the heart of things, sometimes without us realizing it. And if that friend invited us up on a hike, say, in the Blue Hills or southern New Hampshire or on Acadia, and while we were up there, Elijah and Moses showed up, or perhaps in our American context, John Adams, Abraham Lincoln, and Martin Luther King Jr. And we became surrounded by a cloud, and our friend became transformed before our very eyes suffused with this dazzling white light. Well, we begin to see him or her differently. We'd respond a little differently the next time we heard them tell a lesson or shared a meal with them. We'd see that this person had a special, divine kind of mojo going on. Yeah. And we'd suspect that after that time on the mountain. I get it. But in a new way. And yet, they asked me not to tell anyone about it until the Son of Humanity has been raised from the dead. Now, what am I supposed to do with that? Because here you and I are still rolling over this story. Some of you recall that in our sabbatical grant application, we included talk of mountain hikes. And I had planned to go up some big mountains on my time away, but when it came time, a knee injury prohibited me from pursuing that. In writing the grant, I thought about the Transfiguration and the role of mountains in holy experiences across religious traditions. Mountain summits as places where we draw closer to a God's eye view of the world and perhaps even have some theophanies ourselves and get a different perspective on the everyday world below that we normally inhabit. So while in Israel, I wanted to revisit Mount Tabor, 
the traditional commemorative site of the Transfiguration in the lower Galilee region of Israel. Robert and I had spent a beautiful, clear blue sky day visiting some of my favorite sites around the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum, which some of you saw a video of me singing along the shores. The Church of the Beatitudes. Tabga, which is the church commemorating the Feast of the Loaves and Fishes. And after a fish lunch alongside the lake, I wanted to take us up Mount Tabor, which is a freestanding spherical mountain that just sort of emerges on the plain. Geologically, it's called a Monadnock, just like our favorite mountain in southern New Hampshire, and it's about 1,900 feet high, similar in size to some of our older, worn-down mountains here in Massachusetts. And to get there, you have to drive through the Arab town of Kafar Tabor at the base of the mount. And I'll just say that as a white American gay couple in a rental van, who just spent the day with a view of the border with ISIS-dominated Syria on the horizon, your awareness changes about the rough part of the world you're in. And you begin to wonder how much you stick out in an Arab town. You may just be seen as another set of tourists with a set of eye rolls and sighs as you drive by. But in a country that has regular terrorist attacks and centuries of ethnic and religious tension, you wonder if the skeptical eyes checking you out see you as another unwelcome intruder. And you wonder if you might unintentionally wind up in a bit of trouble. So it's safe to say the anxiety and sense of danger were revved up a little bit. And generally, I like a little bit of that. Robert, not so much. I'm sure many of you can relate. Kafar Tabor, to me, seems similar in some respects to the small little towns I've driven through in the rural Midwest where my parents grew up, where skeptical eyes wonder who these city slickers are and what they're up to. And it might even be more dangerous to be openly gay. And so I just kept taking the road up a little higher each rung. And I'd been up the mountain before by car, not by foot, but I hadn't been driving. And this time I was managing a van on a narrow road that would be considered one lane at best here, with plenty of tight switchbacks. And with each twist and turn, the view was getting more and more expansive over the plane. However, when I looked over in the passenger seat, Robert looked like he was about to pop out of his skin. He was starting to breathe heavily and moan. He, he said I could tell you all this. By the time we reached the parking area at the top, we realized that he was having his first ever panic attack. And as soon as we parked, he bolted from the van to catch his breath and try not to throw up. He wouldn't let me touch me or comfort him. And I thought, God, I love him dearly, and I'm so grateful we're traveling together, but is this what the next three months of our adventure is gonna look like? And furthermore, it turned out that the holy site was closed for the day. Needless to say, this was not the kind of theophany either one of us was hoping to have up on the Mount of Transfiguration. I have to say, Robert recovered relatively quickly, although he was still a little miffed at me. And I forewarned him that the only way down was the same way we had come up. He said that now that he knew what to expect, he'd be okay. And by and large, he was. And in some ways, it prepared us for the rest of our travels. I regularly reminded myself that Robert likes a little warning about what to expect so that he can mentally prepare, while I like to charge ahead. And I'll say that Robert also worked actively on his discomfort with high places so that by the end of our time, 
he was walking solo across swaying suspension bridges over waterfalls and gorges. And I faced my own trepidation about continuing to travel across the Mediterranean while both the Omicron virus and the Russian army were on the rise. And I looked at a little online advice of what previous grant recipients would advise to others. And I came across this quote that stuck with me. At some fundamental level, it is important to experience the essential goodness of existence, the wonder of life. You can't really talk about transcendence if you haven't been able to live it. Just as Peter, James, and John were amazed by what happened up there on the mount, I think you and I can cultivate and value the importance of transcendence in our spiritual lives. Last Sunday, Julie gave a beautiful offering invitation in which she mentioned some new research about the experience of awe. She referenced the research of Dr. Keltner, who's published a new book about this. He describes awe as those moments when we could imagine standing next to a 350-foot tall tree, or on a wide open plain with a storm approaching, or hearing an electric gar guitar fill up the space of an arena or holding the tiny finger of a newborn baby. Awe is that thing that blows us away. It reminds us that there are forces bigger than ourselves, and it reveals that our current knowledge is not up to the task of making sense of what we've encountered. In their research on the experience of awe, they found that people feel awe a bit more than two times a week on average usually in ordinary things like a friend's generosity, a leafy tree's play of light and shadow on the sidewalk, or a song that transported you back to your first love. And just as awe is good for our souls, the research shows that it's good for our bodies, which is generally the way that you get us 21st century Americans to pay attention and buy books. When you find a little moment of awe, like listening to music or getting outdoors, it's actually true that your immune system looks a little better. Your cardiovascular functioning is better. You have a sense of more time. You feel less stressed and physical pain. Perhaps more importantly, awe makes our sense of self become more quiet. Aldous Huxley referred to the self as the nagging, interfering, neurotic voice of the ego. And we all feel that in our modern lives, and awe liberates us from the self. You and I need this kind of everyday awe, even when it's discovered in the humblest places, just like how the shepherds were out looking at the night sky and then found awe in a cattle stall. We don't need to wait until we stumble upon it because we can seek it out, because awe is ready all around us. We just need to be committed to looking for it. In their studies, Keltner and his colleagues invited participants to keep daily diaries of awe. And one source of awe that was very common was other people, regular acts of courage, bystanders who were diffusing fights, or subordinates standing up to abusive power holders. All these things inspired awe. So did the simple kindness of others, seeing someone give money to a broke friend, or assist a stranger on the street. They also encourage participants or ask them to take weekly awe walks. And they advise them to tap into your childlike sense of wonder 
Imagine that you're seeing everything for the first time. Take a moment during each walk to notice the vastness of things, like when you're looking at a panoramic view, for example, or at the detail of flower. And to go somewhere new, or try to recognize new features of the same old place. And all of the participants who took these regular all walks reported on their happiness, their anxiety, and their depression. The happiness went up, the anxiety and depression went down, and they also took selfies to, to commemorate their walks and to record them. They found that all walkers actually felt more awe with each passing week. They might have thought that their capacity for this experience of awe would start to decrease, that certain pleasures or accomplishments like a new job or a bigger apartment would start to lose their thrill over time. But they found that the more we practice awe, the richer the experience gets. Like Peter, up on the mountain, transcendence and awe are things we try to catch. We try to bottle up the experience or to embed it in wood, stone, metal, or fabric, or photographs, MP3s, and videos. Or in rooms like this one, where stained glass and an enlarged sense of proportion can help us transcend everyday life and come to those thin places where we might touch or just draw a little closer to the divine. It's the same in our music, when our choir and musicians take us to places in our souls where the mere words cannot go. One of our practices in our Exalting Worship Ministry team meetings is to start by asking, when did you experience God in worship today? Which could mean, when did you transcend your normal daily life? When did you leave behind your daily grind of worries, lists, preoccupations, and just allow yourself to drop into the goodness of God? So on Wednesday, when we begin a new season of Lent, as a time to give more attention to our souls, to draw closer to God, to seek out those thin places, I want to invite all of us to look a little more for all, in daily ways and weekly ways, to notice where we hadn't seen it before. You can see in your order of worship a list of ways that you can get involved this Lent and ways that we can all help each other on this Lenten journey. One that I feel like has even more importance this year as we think about our purpose as a congregation in this time and place. And we're going to do it by looking at the Psalms, this compendium, 150 different poems right in the middle of our scriptures that capture not only awe and the daily grind, but joy, resentment, revenge, forgiveness, love, and hate. And together, I invite us to dip into the goodness of God to leave some of our everyday life and our fears up on the mountain, and to come walk around again with refreshed eyes and souls and spirits. Amen.